0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit lifevestresults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello Team Nerds. Dan Amander here, and we are very excited to share this next Nerds Rounds recording. Nerds Rounds are virtual rounds with world experts where we learn the latest evidence through challenging cases. This incredible series is co-chaired by Master Educators, Dr. Karn Desai from Johns Hopkins and Dr. Natalie Stokes from UPMC. Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is supported with unrestricted funding from Zoll LifeFest. A huge thank you to Mitzi Applegate and Yvonne Chivray for their top-notch production skills that make Cardio Nerds Rounds such an amazing success. Of course, the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. Case details are altered to protect patient health information. And with that, let's round! Karn, take it away! <coughs> Thank you, everyone, for joining us here again for another session of Unit Brown. My name is Karen Desai. I'm a third-year fellow at the University of Maryland, and along with Natalie Stokes, a third-year fellow and chief fellow at the University of Pittsburgh, we are your co-chairs of the series. Now, we've done several sessions so far, and this series specifically is meant to learn together with real-life cases some of the latest evidence that has been released. Now, we have done several Cases so far, but Natalie and I are especially excited for this one because we have a master, master educator. So without any further ado, I will introduce Natalie.
1: Thanks so much, Corinne. My name is Natalie, as he said, and we are beyond blessed to have with us one of the greatest clinicians and educators of our time in cardiology. Dr. Nishimura is a man who needs no introduction to any of you here today. He is the Judd and Mary Morris Layton Professor of Cardiovascular Disease and Hypertension at Mayo Clinic. He was among the authors of the most recent Valve guidelines, which is what we're going to be discussing today. He's joining us to talk about some of the nuances of applying the guidelines specific to mitral regurgitation. Dr. Nishimura, thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and insight today. Welcome back to CardioNerds. Thank you very much. So we have no relevant disclosures today, and I think that means we are ready to get started rounding. So our first case here is a patient who is a 72-year-old man. He has a history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, uh, known with an EF of 15 to 20%, atrial fibrillation, and moderate to severe mitral regurgitation. He came to our hospital with acute decompensated heart failure. He had fallen out of care several years prior to this and was now decompensated. He required a little bit of inotropic support for diuresis, but was able to be transitioned off of inotropes after being diuresed 11 kilograms and then transitioned to guideline-directed medical therapy. At discharge, he was discharged on the following medications: amiodarone, two hundred milligrams daily; apixaban, five milligrams twice daily; vumex, two milligrams twice daily; metoprolol succinate, fifty milligrams daily; and empagliflozin, ten milligrams. Unfortunately, he had been trialed on both entresto and spironolactone as well as the alone, and was unable to tolerate them due to his blood pressure. He was also given a prescription for cardiac rehab, which he did complete.
2: Natalie, can I ask what the amiodarone was for?
1: For his atrial fibrillation. The metoprolol alone wasn't maintaining his rates. And actually, he was pretty symptomatic from it. And so he was pushed towards rhythm to with amiodarone. This was his chest x-ray prior to discharge. There is some cardiomegaly, some pulmonary vascular congestion, and maybe some mild pulmonary edema at the basis. But you're still able to appreciate the costophrenic angles as well as the retrocardiac silhouette. Six months later, he comes back to your office and he's reporting debilitating dyspnea. He really never was able to get rid of this dyspnea despite completing cardiac rehab. He is stable on that same medication regimen. He is compliant with his medicines, and his weight has remained at his discharge weight, which is considered his drawing weight. His exam at this time, some pertinent findings. Cardiac exam, he is regular, great and rhythm. He has a three out of six blowing holosystolic murmur at the apex. His PMI is laterally displaced. His JVP is six, and he has no hepatojungular reflux. And he has trace bilateral non-pitting lower extremity edema with some very mild subbasilar rails. His labs are notable for a normal renal function, normal liver function, nothing truly remarkable or out of the ordinary from his lab values. And just of note, his STS for mitral valve repair is 5.9%, and for mitral valve replacement is 7.9%. And that I give to you for consideration in just a moment. We sent him for both a TTE as well as a TEE. I show some select images here from his transesophageal echocardiogram. His blood pressure at the time was 105 over 74. He has a moderately dilated left ventricle, transthoracic echo. The day before, his end diastolic diameter is 6.4 centimeters and end systolic diameter is 5.9 centimeters. His EF is about 15 to most generous 20 percent. Better visualized on TTE, it was noted to be 16 percent by Simpson's method. He has a normal RV size in function. And now to talk about the valves. So you can see here there's a mitral regurgitant jet originating at the A2P2 scallops and is posteriorly directed due to a restriction in the leaflet of the P2 scallop. Additional values calculated from our transesophageal echo was the effective regurgitant orifice area was 0.5 centimeters square. His regurgitant volume was 55 milliliters. And just of note, the mitral valve planimetry area is 7.9 centimeters squared with a mean gradient of 2. He has severe left atrial enlargement And it's also worth noting that there's incomplete coaptation of the tricuspid valve leaflets with severe tricuspid regurgitation. So at this point, we want to open it up for our first poll question. What would your approach next be to this patient? Would you send him back to try to optimize his medications? Maybe he needs a little more diuresis and some up titration of his medical therapy. Refer him for surgical replacement of his mitral valve or surgical repair refer him for a mitral procedure, refer for both mitral and tricuspid intervention, or is this patient now at the stage where we should be referring him for palliative inotropes? So, Dr. Nishimura, I want to open it up to you. How would you approach this patient?
2: Well, Natalie, let me give you a little historical perspective on mitral regurgitation uh, because it's really evolved a lot even over the past 10 years. So if you go back to like our initial guidelines, we started, I think in the 1990 something, and then even went through 2000 and even up to 2012, all the recommendations for intervention for mitral regurgitation were for primary mitral regurgitation. We, we didn't even include anything about secondary mitre regurgitation in the guidelines because nobody felt that it would do any good to do anything about it. And actually, I remember back then from University of Michigan, Dr. Bowling was one of the brave surgeons who said, well, maybe we should operate on these patients with big dilated ventricles and secondary MR and started doing these really, really small rings on them. And they did have some improvement, but I think after a few years, they realized that the patient didn't really gain much from it five or six years ago, secondary mitral regurgitation was just ignored. But then what we started to realize is that almost the majority of patients now coming to us because you're saving these patients in the ICU and you've got more dilated cardiomyopathy, a lot of them did have secondary mitral regurgitation and we had to say something about it. And And let me just go back and say that even the categorization of mitral regurgitation changed because everybody used kind of functional or degenerative or whatever. And we we decided what we should do is we should say primary mitral regurgitation is a disease of the valve. So for instance, prolapse, coronal rupture, infective endocarditis, and secondary mitral regurgitation is a completely different animal because it's really a disease of the ventricle. And with that in mind, when we first started saying primary versus secondary, we would say we intervene on primary, but there's nobody who ever showed any benefit of intervening on secondary. So I I just want to put that into perspective because seeing your response here, I think all your young faculty and fellows are now saying, boy, we should push ahead with that. The concept of intervening on secondary mitral regurgitation was always considered a no-no because it was a disease of the ventricle. And actually when these trials came out with the clip, the COAP trial and MitraFR trial, all of us were sitting around saying it's going to be a negative result. And we're completely shocked when the COAP trial showed such a significant improvement, not only in symptoms and hospitalization, but even mortality, because we thought, well, well how is that possible? But it works. And the outcomes are quite clear that in a subset of patients with secondary mitral regurgitation, yes, indeed, we can help them with the mitral So that's kind of the background
1: thank you so much for giving that perspective. I think we take for granted training through the last three years that this is such a significant change in approach towards these patients with secondary
2: MR. It's fascinating how things evolve with time and how one or two trials completely change the way we think about it. So you as in the fellowship programs now are very fortunate that you have all of this behind you. And yes, you can help some of these patients uh, indeed, with them, but Not everybody with secondary mitral regurgitation deserves a cliff. Natalie, can we go backwards a little bit for your slides? Absolutely. Which would you like to go to? Go to the chest x-ray. This chest x-ray is incredibly important because one of the criteria for intervening on a patient with secondary mitral regurgitation with a mitral cliff is that they should have optimized medical therapy. And Natalie, I'm sure that as you looked at the differences between the COAP trial and the MITRA-FR trial, that's one of the major differences in that the COAP patients were patients who were optimally treated with medical therapy and thus needed additional therapy. Probably the MITRA-FR trial, there were a number of patients who still could have benefited from medical therapy. And actually, one thing that's not known as well is that probably over a third or even more of the patients that initially were supposed to be in the COAB trial were excluded because they got so much better with medical therapy. The question then is, how do you know they have optimal medical therapy? And this chest x-ray is kind of an old-fashioned antiquated modality. I know many of our fellows, they don't even look at chest x-rays anymore. They just look at the ECHO report. But if you look at this chest X-ray, at least, and and this was upon dismissal, this patient still has a lot of fluid on board. You had pointed out, look at that pulmonary venous congestion, there's interstitial infiltrates there. This patient still has about five or six kilograms of fluid to be removed. And a lot of that could indeed help the symptoms. I I guess we don't have one when they followed up in six months, but if in fact the patient's weight hadn't changed at all, they were still symptomatic and you had gotten a chest x-ray and seen this, you probably would have said, boy, the preload could certainly be much, much reduced in this patient and and maybe have gotten to the point where his symptoms were very good. When we see patients at Mayo with our fellows, we we do kind of old fashioned stuff like look at the 12 lit electrocardiogram and look at the echocardiogram and even examine the patient before we even go on to the echo because it's going to give you a lot of clues that you don't necessarily get from echo. So that's number one. I think chest X-ray is important to know if you've optimized medical therapy. Your physical examination on this type of patient is incredibly important for a number of reasons. Number one, are, are they at dry weight and your physicals helping you there. But number two is look at that venous pressure. Now, one of the options that you had is because this patient has, quote, severe mitral regurgitation and tricuspid regurgitation, do we do surgery and repair the mitral valve and repair the tricuspid valve, or do we do a clip of the mitral valve and do a clip of the tricuspid valve because the, quote, tricuspid regurgitation is so severe. And we do know that if we leave significant tricuspid regurgitation after intervening on the mitral valve, that support prognosis. But if you take a look at your physical examination here, that venous pressure being normal is incredibly important because you would never intervene with an extra step on tricuspid regurgitation in a high-risk patient that venous pressure is normal. So no matter how much, quote, severe the ECHO says the tricuspid regurgitation is if you don't have a large V-wave, that's probably not causing much of a problem. And you also said that the right ventricle was normal size. So there's something funny going on with the severity of the TR, but just your examination alone will kind of have you shy away from making that tricuspid regurgitation a part of the package that you have to evaluate. The other important thing here is that three over six, blowing holes systolic, that's pretty loud murmur. And the reason I I, I really want to see the physical examination on this patient is a lot of our secondary MRs will have, quote, severe MR on the basis of echo, ERO, so on and so forth. But when you listen to them, you can barely hear a murmur. And and that means that, number one, the mitral regurgitation probably isn't as severe. Or number two, There's just not enough pump to generate a murmur. And if you don't hear much of a murmur in these type of patients, it it just makes the lights go off that maybe the mitral regurgitation is as significant or or plays a greater role in these patient symptoms as it should. But here you hear a fairly loud murmur, which makes you think more of the mitral regurgitation. But this loud of a murmur might mean that this is more than just the secondary MR that we think about where the leaflets are pulled apart because the ventricle is so big, it's stretching the cordi. There's probably a primary component to this mitral regurgitation if the murmur is loud. And we can go over that when you show the echo. But I think that's important because those mitral regurgitations in which the leaflets are just pulled apart, in which you only get a central jet, might not respond as well to fixing the mitral regurgitation as something in which you have an abnormality of the mitral valve or an abnormality of the, let's say, supporting structure, such as you have here on the right, when you have more of an eccentric jet. So that eccentricity of the jet is telling you that there's probably some abnormality of the mitral valve apparatus in addition to this pulling apart. Was that kind of what your thinking was?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But what I was going to ask is your thoughts on Can you have remodeling of leaflets and actual valvular apparatus in response to prolonged secondary MR? And does that change how you approach the patient?
2: Remodeling mean?
1: Like valvular tethering or there's a problem with the valve apparatus. We think of secondary as it's a problem with the ventricle or the atria as opposed to the valve itself. But can you, over time, with secondary MR, start to have some issues primary to the leaflets? Yeah, Doesn't so, that change how you classify those patients?
2: That's an excellent point. And actually, if you see enough of these mites regurgitation, you, you, you actually have primary versus secondary MR. But I think that secondary MR should be further divided into mm-hmm. the central jet from the left ventricle dilated plug cordial apparatus. Versus patients who have, let's say, leaflet retraction due to the papillary muscle or fibrosis or something like that. Now, I don't know if it develops with time. I think that's all part of the underlying pathophysiology. But the secondary MR that has this big dilated ventricle of only a central jet probably won't respond as well because it's more of a ventricle. Versus the secondary MR, in which there is some tethering and an eccentric jet, and a louder murmur on auscultation. My thought process here is this is starting to look more like a mitre regurgitation that would respond to therapy rather than these big, big dilated ventricles in which the mitral valve leaflets are pulled apart, so on and so forth. You're seeing a retracted posterior leaflet, aren't you? which is causing that eccentric jet. So I think for all the fellows, as you look at the echoes, look very closely at the mitral valve morphology and the direction of the jet. And as as Natalie's kind of very astutely pointing out, there's going to be a big difference between that central jet versus the eccentric jet, and it's the eccentric jets that probably will respond more because that's probably more of the mitral regurgitation rather than the left ventricle causing the problem. So if I were to look at this, I would probably say, well, you know, th- this might be secondary, but it's that secondary that will respond more to an intervention rather than a primer. With that being said, I, I, I do want to go back to that chest X-ray though, and say that, boy, you know, when this patient comes, I'd really like a follow-up chest X-ray. Because if the chest x ray still looked like this, I would definitely be more aggressive with diuresis, get their weight down more and see how they are. And if, in fact, you can make them much, much better with more aggressive medical therapy, we can hold off on the clip. But if, in fact, they've shown that on the chest X-ray, the pulmonary congestion is much, much better, the lungs are actually clear on chest X-ray, then I would probably go ahead with the clip of the mitral valve, but leave the tricuspid valve alone for the reasons that I talked about, which includes lack of a big V wave and a right ventricle is actually working pretty well. I I think the last question is pulmonary hypertension in this patient at the time you saw it six months. Do you know what the PA pressure was?
1: Oh, he actually did not have significant pulmonary hypertension. It was upper limits of normal. I think the PASP was around 39, 38.
2: Sorry that I didn't include that. Okay, good. Because if you're going to go ahead with a clip, you can see in the guidelines, we said that the indication would be the secondary mitre regurgitation, unresponsive to optimal guideline directed medical therapy, but meeting the criteria that was in the inclusion criteria in the COAP trial, which means that ventricle can't be really, really big. You know, 65 here, in diastolic dimension still fits in. If you start getting the 80, 90 millimeter. It's probably not going to be effective. And number two, you can't have significant pulmonary hypertension because that's going to just make things really, really bad and the right ventricle is going to fail, so on and so forth. So overall, in this person here, I would want to make sure they're adequately diuresed and use an old-fashioned $25 chest x-ray for that.
1: First question for you is, does his EF being less than 20%? confirmed across multiple echoes, does that deter you at all from thinking about a microclip? being that specifically that falls outside of the co-op criteria?
2: I know that you have to meet the criteria, but as I looked at that ventricular function on your echo, we can make 15%, 21%, or 23%. It's not this quivering ventricle. There's still a whole lot of push there, so that would not deter me. And I would probably really look at that EF. But glad that the person brought that up because if in fact it truly was 10-15%, to that falls outside the COLEC criteria.
1: Thank you. How much does atrial functional MR play a role in the pathology of secondary MR
2: due
0: to
1: the mitral annular dilation?
2: Fantastic question. And that was the reason I asked you about amiodarone. You said rate control wasn't good enough and you were trying rhythm control. Is that right? He was
1: new to our system, and thus we didn't know. He has a known history of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, but we didn't know how much the atrial fibrillation was contributing to both his symptoms and the severity of his cardiomyopathy.
2: So did you get him back to sinus rhythm?
1: He was. Actually, on discharge, he was in sinus rhythm, and at the time of the TEE and, spoiler alert, secondary next procedure, he was in sinus rhythm.
2: Okay. What we're learning now is that that Atrial mitral regurgitation, atrial tricuspid regurgitation, we're seeing more and more. And, and what I mean by that is these patients who have atrial fibrillation, and because they are atrial fibrillation, they're atrial remodels, they're annulus dilates, and they get mitral regurgitation as a result of that. We're just starting to get a handle on that, but especially in this patient, I'm glad that you put them out on amiodarone. Because even if they have a bad LD and they've been in their atrial fibrillation for, let's say, a year or two years, with this type of valvular disease, it's always worthwhile to try to get them back in normal rhythm if he had persistent atrial fibrillation, because sometimes that in itself can make the light regurgitation better.
1: And we'll move on to the next case, but just to give you a little bit of follow-up on this patient, I actually feel quite validated because we did it exactly along the lines of what you were thinking. He wasn't able to tolerate any more of the guideline-directed medical therapy, but we did diurese him about an additional six to seven pounds, which was when we started to hit our limits, and it didn't really change his symptom burden. Unfortunately, we don't have a chest x-ray to show you to reflect that, but the thinking was the same. They thought that the valve was quite amenable to a mitral clip, and he had a very quick, successful mitral clip procedure with residual mild MR and mild to moderate TR subsequently.
2: Very nice. I got to say, five years ago, nobody would have ever thought about intervening on this mitral valve. So as fellows, you guys are in a great position how to better take care of these patients.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's exciting. Well, thank you so much. We're going to move on now to the, the second case.
0: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Nurtamari. So I'm going to describe a story of a 60-year-old gentleman. He's got a history of coronary artery with a prior PCI back in 2017 and unclear under which circumstances was placed, whether it was a NSTEMI versus an angina. And he's transferred to your hospital here at 3, 4 a.m. and sky-state CD shock. And I mentioned sky-state CD shock because just this week, there's been a little bit of an update in terms of those guidelines and how to differentiate. And he noted before it had been coming over that he had several weeks of worsening orthostomia and edema, and you get this report prior to transfer that the EF is 15% of the patients. So the LV is 6.3 centimeters, but there's reduced RV systolic function, and they tell you that there's moderate to severe functional MR and moderate PR. And now you're looking through the system and going through the chart, and you see that just about... Two years ago, it was reported around 50-55%. LV was not dilated, and there was mild that. So when he arrives to the CCU, he's demonstrating that he's confused, he's nauseous, reporting the extremity. You examine him, and his extremities are cool. He's got decreased urine output, looking through the chart over the past several hours, and his lactate would turn to 7. A trip on an eye shows that it's flat at 0.5. And stabilizing the patient, he started on low-dose sabetamine, and he's taken just a few hours later to the cath lab, and the decision made is to do a right and left heart cast. The first obtained a right heart cast to define the hemodynamics for this patient, and then proceed with the left heart cast. So when the right heart cast is obtained, it is Ao pressure. This is done the right radial approach it was 89 over 70, noting that we have a narrow pulse pressure. The RA pressure is 19. We have a quite elevated RV pressure. The PA mean is 49. The wedge pressure is 20, and the Z waves are up to 27. Now, the thermodilution cardiac output and index is two point four and one point four, and if you note know that the RA the wedge uh, ratio is nearly one, and the cardiac power output, including the RA pressure, returned at zero point three. So prior to proceeding with the left heart cath, he has the intra aortic balloon pump, which immediately leads to improvement in tachycardia. Now I'll show some films here of his left heart cath, and what you can clearly note in the right coronary system, there's this. It looks like a thrombotic it's not alterated lesion in the proximal system around 99% with a sluggish flow, TV 2 flow throughout. And then in his left system, you can see right at the proximal edge of his higher stent, there also appears to be about a 75 to 80% lesion also looks alterated, concerning that maybe these are thrombotic acute events. Now, at this point, a heart team approach is taken and whether to proceed with surgical revascularization plus minus the consideration of him intervening on his mitral valve. And at that time, the heart team approach to deem that he would not be uh, a suitable candidate for pursuing uh, surgical revascularization and concerned that he would not tolerate the non-cardiopulmonary bypass. So he does eventually undergo revascularization about a day and a half later with both his RCA and his LAD with good results, as you can see, through both the system. Now, he returns to the unit with the balloon pump in place and he remains on the dibuty. And now, over approximately a week and a half, so the team tried to eye, got a guideline directed therapy at low doses. They used Enalopro. They used uh, low dose for But again, that wasn't well tolerated initially because potassium was going up. The you know, digoxin was added. And again, not tolerating it well. But he slowly, over that week, is improving to the point where his pressures are holding, his lactate is normalized. He's feeling better, and the, uh, the balloon pump and the swan are removed. And they continue to be on debutamine and try to wean it. But uh, just about a day and a half later, after the balloon pump is removed, his lactate is rising again, and he's feeling the same nausea. And so a repeat right heart task was done, and a T was done to uh, evaluate the MR. But I won't go through the, the full numbers, but I'll show it here in a second. But basically, he had low indices again, and then a the balloon pump was placed. And what I'm showing here is that the right heart cath numbers were obtained with the balloon pump on standby. And you can see that there's very large V-waves for this patient up to about 28, 29 million years. And when the balloon pump is on one-to-one, that the V-waves terminate. And I included the full numbers here for those that are listening on our podcast audience, and it will be on the website as well. But you can notice that there's a clear difference between what the wedge pressure and V-waves were with the balloon pump at one-to-one versus on standby. And a CE is performed, and these images are courtesy of my co-fellow Matt of finance. And when the CE is performed, this is at one-to-one, and we're seeing uh, the A2P2 uh, scalp. And we're trying to pay attention for what the potential mechanism is. And on this one-to-one, you can see that this central, but a little bit of posterior eccentric jet that's occurring with this mitral regurgitation. We don't clearly see in this view that the posterior leaflet is restricted or that the Anterior leaflet has a different co-optation point than the posterior leaflet. And I'm going to add that there were additional findings, including that the LV solid function was close to 15%, that there was, at this 1-to-1, that there was a solid flow reversal in the pulmonary vein, and at 1-to-1, the uh, 3D EROA was calculated at 0.45 centimeters, squared, and return volume was 60 millimeters, both of which would be considered severe. Dr. Diamond continued to proceed with obtaining the images now with the balloon pump at 1-to-1, and at a balloon pump on standby. And now, this isn't a, a true commercial view, and we're likely visualizing A32 segments and P1, but you can clearly see just qualitatively that the regurgitant jet increases significantly, if not occupying more than 50% of the left atrium. And a recalculation of, offline showed that the 3G ROA was 0.55 5 centimeters, regurgitant volume 93 millimeters. And I didn't include it here, maybe for discussion of shortly. But the coaptation depth increased and the tenting area increased for this patient on one-to-one standby. I'm including the continuous wave Doppler on one-to-one and on standby as well. Now, there is a little bit of drop-off. of The signal it wasn't uh, perfectly aligned, but if I trace it out, you can see that the velocity was closer to 6.5 meters per second at one-to-one and around 6 to 5.5 when it was on standby with a much more dense waveform. And this is a 3D. Uh, on face view, and you can see that on the 3D, when the balloon pump is on standby, there's a, uh, a co-optation it is certainly worse compared to when it is at one-to-one. And I'm going to show the color here as well. That again, demonstrates a largely central, somewhat posterior directed, but largely central MR. So I went through a lot of information, but essentially it's quite a fixed patient that initially came in in, in clear cardiogenic shock, sky stage CD. Was revascularized with percutaneous intervention, and then was unable to be weaned from the balloon pump. Actually, once the balloon pump was taken out and weaned, he did work. So the balloon pump went back in, and there's clearly severe MR. So what would the audience do here? And then we'll turn it over to Dr. Nishimura. Would you reattempt the debutamine wean and increasing guideline-directed therapy? At this point, would you say it's time to initiate a bad or transplant evaluation? Would you refer the patient for surgical mitral replacement? Refer for surgical mitral valve repair? or refer for uh, a mitral clip procedure. And the most popular answer was
2: refer for a mitral clip. So Dr. Nicomar, that was a lot of information, but we'd love to hear your approach. It's a fantastic case, Karen, with a lot of stuff in there. But I think the major thing is how much of his problem is due to his muscle, and how much of his problem is due to his mitral valve. And if it is his mitral valve, why is there such a, huge difference when the pump is on and off. So there's this subset of patients uh, that we've been looking at more closely who have what we call dynamic mitral regurgitation. And, and it's a mitral regurgitation that's related primarily due to changes in the structure of the annulus and the mitral valve apparatus that happens with changes in preload, changes in afterload, changes in contractility, so on and so forth. But they can go anywhere from mild mitral regurgitation to severe mitral regurgitation. We've written a number of these up. I never used to believe that mitral regurgitation could be so dynamic but indeed it is. And I think this is one of those cases that I'm sure the ischemia played a role in it, that other changes in the morphology of the ventricle played a role in it. But this basically is a mitre regurgitation that is exquisitely sensitive to preload and afterload. And when any of those become abnormal, the mitre regurgitation becomes very, very severe. The continuous wave Doppler gives us a lot of information here Not only on the severity of mitral regurgitation because there's a very dense signal, and not only on the relationship between the left atrium and left ventricular systolic pressure, but the contour of the mitral regurgitation signal is very very important. So remember that the mitral regurgitation is going to reflect the instantaneous gradient between the left ventricle and the left atrium, and if you take a look there during isovolumic contraction. There's a very, very rapid rise in that mitral regurgitation velocity, which would reflect the fact that if you had a left ventricular pressure in there, there would be a rapid rise during isothelumic contraction. And one of the old-fashioned ways that we used to look at contractility of the left ventricle was to look at the DPDT. So by just looking at this mitral regurgitation signal, even though your echo report is coming back and saying the ejection fraction is 15%, to me, the contractility of the ventricle is actually much more than that. And and if we're going to need to look then at the relationship between the left ventricle and the mitral regurgitation, just seeing the signal here is telling me that ventricles actually not doing too badly. And probably a lot of what's going on is related to this dynamic nature of the light regurgitation. So that's one aspect that I I want all of you to start to look at when you have these Doppler traces. Don't just look at the fact that, well, the velocity is six meter per second, and we're going to use it in our ERO equation. But really, much more information of your Doppler signals in that, yeah, it, it's going to tell you what's going on inside the ventricle in terms of ventricular pressures and atrial pressures. And to me, that CW signal is telling me an awful lot. And the balance now is more towards that vitriure agitation, which I believe is one of our dynamic trigger agitations. The other thing I want to point out is if, in fact, we just looked at the right heart catheterization, when the patient first came in, Look at that pulmonary hypertension. Show the cath PA pressure is like 70 when the aortic pressure is only 90. Th- this is severe, severe pulmonary hypertension. And if we had taken our conventional measurements of let's say transpulmonary gradient, so it would be your PA 50 minus your wedge of 20, which is 30 millimeter of mercury, and then calculate your pulmonary resistance, it would be sky high. And we would say at this time that this patient is not going to be responsive to anything because the major problem is severe primary pulmonary hypertension with the pulmonary pressure out of proportion to the elevation of pulmonary artery wedge pressure. I'm pointing this out because this is a fallacy in our calculations. And what Showed is that if you aggressively treat these patients, aggressively get their hemodynamics as well as possible, you can actually take what was thought to be irreversible pulmonary hypertension and make it much, much better because I think your follow-up PA pressure was only 45 millimeter of mercury. And that has very, very important implications on the effectiveness of aggressive medical therapy on these hemodynamics. So that's the second thing I I, want to point out. But I I do think that what you're showing here with your wedge pressure, with your balloon pump on and your balloon pump off reflects the dynamic nature of the mitral regurgitation in response to the increased afterload. Because I suspect that the balloon pump is not necessarily making the ventricle better, but relieving the afterload on the ventricle and thus making the mitral regurgitation better. And these patients with dynamic MR, if you can't control their loading conditions, probably are best served by treating the mitre regurgitation itself. So it's a different category of mitre regurgitation than what we've even talked about before with our primary and secondary MR. But I, I do feel that you've very nicely shown how responsive this is to changes in afterload with the balloon pump on and off number one, and number two, that continuous wave Doppler is really showing us that the ventricular function is actually better preserved and that the majority of the problems are related to the regurgitation. So Karen, with that in mind, your thoughts or your comments and what your team was thinking?
0: I think what the team was thinking similarly, Adam, who did the TEE for this patient has a question in the chat here asking what are some of the patho-anatomic features that would predict dynamic MR?
2: It's the fact that you don't have primary mitral valve leaflet abnormalities. In other words, you don't have a flail leaflet, you don't have a prolapse. The annulus is probably modestly dilated, but there's really no other anatomic aspects that I can think of. We actually published something in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings about a year ago and You might want to pull that off and put it on your Nerd's website, but it does describe a number of these patients with dynamic MR that we just hadn't thought about before, but we're seeing it more and more and more. So as far as what you see, probably not much, but you've been taking into consideration this whole clinical evaluation. And these patients, their murmur changes dramatically with position, way out of proportion than what you would expect. Then you go to the ECHO lab and you can see significant changes from standing, sitting, exercising, so on and so forth.
0: Good afternoon, Tamar. That was a a fantastic breakdown, especially that aspect of the DPGT, which I I thoroughly remember for studying for ECHO boards. (laughs) And I I seem to have uh, lost that information before presenting it to you. So I have now added it back to my memory here. You know, in terms of uh, what the team was thinking, I briefly glossed on it here a little bit, but there were some aspects that didn't really make the uh, patient favorable for uh, a mitral clip. The tensing height was actually close to 12 to 13 millimeters once the patient was on balloon pump standby. The posterior leaflet was not the ideal length. It was around uh, 8 to 10 millimeters. No specific trial or criteria to say what to do next. And I think he thought that a mitral clip would be the ideal pursuit just because it was already turned down from a surgical perspective, could be on the balloon pump, low ejector traction. So the team did pursue the mitra clip. Unfortunately, the clip didn't hold despite a very good grasp, although it demonstrated pre-deploying it. It was deployed at the A2P2 segment, but it just continued to dislodge it despite multiple attempts on the posterior leaflet. So at that point, a decision was made to uh, convert to valve replacement of the bioprosthetic valve. And the patient actually did really well. He just followed up with one of our... Uh, heart failure doctors uh, recently and is doing well and been able to go up on guideline directed
2: therapy as an outpatient. Very brave for the surgeon to take it on, but I'm very glad that the surgeon did because that certainly was the treatment of choice. And in the patients that we've seen with the dynamic MR, if they don't respond to a clip, we go ahead and operate just like you did.
0: This wasn't clearly that the patient necessarily had, that could all be explained as being ischemic MR. But there's a lot of debate in the literature, and even in the guidelines that were released in 2020 about what to do for ischemic MR and when to intervene and what to intervene. Could you just briefly
2: go through your approach to uh, ischemic MR in the chronic setting, not necessarily in the acute setting? So like we discussed with Natalie, ischemic MR is considered secondary mitral regurgitation. But I do feel that ischemic mitral regurgitation where you've infarcted your inferior wall and you retracted your posterior medial muscle, and you've got tenting of the posterior leaflet is a completely different animal than the big dilated cardiomyopathy with the central jet. So you have this eccentric jet, you've got a retracted posterior leaflet, you've got inferior regional wall motion abnormalities, and many times the rest of the ventricle still contracting very well. Now, based on previous data that we have, you always try guideline-directed medical therapy first. But I think the guideline-directed medical therapy is not going to be as effective in treating the left ventricle as with the dilated cardiomyopathy, because your ACE inhibitors, aldosterone receptors, SGLT2 inhibitors, so on and so forth, are not going to be as effective because you've got one wall that's not working, but the rest of the walls are. So you go ahead and you give your best shot at guideline-directed medical therapy. And if you can make them better and diuresis makes them better, that's fine. But if they continue to be significantly symptomatic, I feel that this is a uh, mitre regurgitation that would respond to interventional treatment. Whether or not you can do a clip, I'll let you try it here, or you should operate if they, in fact, are good candidates and they have continued symptoms despite medical therapy, I have a much lower threshold to pull the trigger than I do with the big dilated my myopathy.
0: Thanks, Dr. Nishamarin. I just point out a comment in the chat that going back to the continuous wave Doppler that Dr. Silvestri from Penn pointed out, the velocity greater than six meters a second means the patient did have elevated LV systolic pressure, likely indicative
2: of better contractile function that we are accounting for on that echocardiogram. I didn't see the electrocardiogram. Can you tell me what the electrocardiogram showed? So
0: it did not show that a patient had a narrow QRS with SC depression laterally and
2: inferiorly with T-wave inversion, And that did not change throughout? It did not change throughout, no. Okay, I'm just saying that because if you look at what we wrote about dynamic MR, about a third of them actually did develop an intraventricular conduction delay or left bundle branch block intermittently. And it's when they did that, that they developed a severe mitral regurgitation. So they they were a different animal in that you would treat them with more resynchronization therapy. But another thing to remember about these patients with, quote, secondary mitral regurgitation, especially if they're very dynamic, is to look for dysynchrony and make sure you look at the underlying electrocardiogram, both during the time that they have the severe MR and the time they don't have the severe MR. Just because we're right
0: up against that one o'clock hour and we've had a lot of great learning pearls. I think this is an appropriate time to end rounds though. I wish we could just continue on and on with Dr. Nishimura as I was telling him before this, that he's in my living room with board review quite, quite frequently. But uh, Natalie and I really, really want to thank you Dr. Nishimura for joining us here today. This was highly informative, a lot of pearls on how to use some quote unquote old school tools to
2: really inform our new school management. Thanks very much, Karen. Thanks very much, Natalie. Very nicely put together and we'll look forward to the future.